city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Porton on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here. I'm excited about today's guest because he's a good guy, a former teammate, and a friend. And he's the second of my Canadian trinity of personal favorites to come on the podcast. Please welcome Rob Bartz. Rob, how are you? I'm great. I'm great, Billy. Thanks for having me, my man. This is uh, it's exciting. Yeah, a long time coming, I think, uh, to have you on. So I'm happy uh, to. I'm happy you're here. Perfect. I got to. I got the uh, pleasure of listening to my my old teammate Joey last uh, was it last week or two weeks ago. Um, and enjoyed the listen. It was uh, it was Joey to a T. I love it. Yeah. Don't tell him you enjoyed it because it'll be texting <laughs> me to come on again. All right. That's factual. <laughs> but that's why. Hey, we always have to do this because if he listens to this, then he's going to say, ah, I see yeah. the man. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I tell you what, if I'm smart, if I ever monetize this, I've got to just hand it over to him because he'll care. Oh, so facts. facts. Yeah. All right. Let me give the long bio and then we'll get into some questions. Sounds good. Rob was born in Surrey, BC and played college soccer at the University of Portland from 1987 to 1990. During his time at the University of Portland, Bartz made and still holds the career record for game-winning goals. He was an all-Northwest Athletic Conference and West Coast Athletic Conference selection, as the pilots played in two different conferences at the time. His 1988 pilots went 21 wins, zero losses, and zero ties until their first loss came in the NCAA semifinals at Indiana, where they lost to eventual national champions Indiana 1-0. In 1989, Rob scored the first goal for the second iteration of the Portland Timbers in a 1-0 win at then Civic Stadium against the California Kickers. In that season, Rob scored seven goals, which placed him seventh on the Western Soccer League's scoring list. He played a decade of professional indoor soccer with the Portland Pride, Portland Pythons, and Utah Freeze. He was a 1995 Continental Indoor Soccer League All-Star with the Portland Pride, and 2000 World Indoor Soccer League Defensive Player of the Year, and that was with the Utah Freeze. Rob has a USSFA license and has been coaching club, high school, and college soccer since the early 90s. Rob coached in the United States Development Academy at FC Portland Soccer Academy and spent a decade coaching at his alma mater, the University of Portland. In 2016, he became an assistant coach at San Jose State University, and in 2018, he became the head coach for the New Mexico State University Aggies women's program. In 2022, he became the Aggies' winningest coach in history, and his team had the most wins in program history, went undefeated at home, won the Western Athletic Conference uh, Tournament on a three-shutout performance, and secured the program's first-ever NCAA tournament berth. I'm leaving out a ton of stuff, but I want to get to him. Please welcome again, Rob Bartz. Thanks, Billy. I'm, uh, to be fair, it's, it's kind of interesting to hear all that stuff. That you you kind of forget a lot of it, and it's kind of kind of fun to hear about all that stuff in the past. Yeah, and well, what's wild is I left a lot out just because. I mean, we there is more, uh, but it's just it. You know, I mean, got to get to you at some point here too. 
right? <laughs> I appreciate that. Because, because yeah, there's a, I mean, the thing that sticks out to me, honestly, when I was doing this and I was looking for, there's a lot of playing stuff and I have personal memories as well. I wanted to say watching you when I was a kid, but I, I didn't think you'd appreciate that. <laughs> But, uh, uh, but, okay. but, you know, watching you playing with you, but the thing that, that honestly sticks out to me a lot is not just as a player, but as a coach. And there's a lot of coaching I left out. And I hope we get to some of that because um, how much you've given back to the game through that is, you know, it, it's immeasurable. For sure. I, I, the, obviously, this game has been uh, like second to none for me. I think it's, uh, you know, when you, when you choose it for your life, I, it just, I mean... It's, I didn't. I didn't choose the path of of wealth. That's for sure. But I think if wealth is just mo monetary, you know, I missed out. But if it's not, I mean, intrinsically, I think I've killed it. And you know, my when I look at what coaching has done for me in the ability to give back to to any player that wants to become the best they can be, you know, it's been truly unbelievable career so far and yeah. hopefully can continue it and keep it going for a while. Yeah. I hope you do. Um, so let's go back then. How did the game choose you? Right. What was like, what was soccer like when you were growing up? Great question. Uh, you know, I'll, I tell you this right now, I, I I'll never forget signing my first pro contract and sending the picture to my brothers and literally thanking them. You know, obviously my father was the one that started us and, you know, typical to, a lot of us, you know, you know, our dad coached our teams when we were young. Um, I ha having two older brothers, you know, I played on their teams. So, you know, I was always playing two or three years up most of my, my youth. And, uh, you know, that just really helped shape my competitiveness. And that's, that's in, in the, you know, club world. I think just being around home, whether we played, hide and seek hockey soccer kick the can whatever we were doing it, it, it was always my brothers were never easy on me and and you know i think that really helped shape who i am today because of of that constant battle of i'm not losing to you guys regardless of whether i'm a squirrely little guy trying to get myself around so i i, I look back at those days as, as much as at the time i felt like they were being harsh on me um it was truly, I, I, I wouldn't give up my youth for anything. I think I had just such an amazing childhood experience with just an, a competitive environment with my family as well as, as, as the club world. And so truly soccer was part of my life since I was three years old. Um, you know, I, if my parents ever went away, their gift they'd bring back to me was a different soccer ball. And I was over the moon and I would just be beating hell out of the garage or side of the fence nonstop. And, and, you know, I just love, I knew I loved the game from a very early age. Did you, this wasn't on the sheet, but were the white caps a presence in your, cause you grew up in a suburb of, would you call it a suburb of Vancouver? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is an understatement of the century, Billy. It was uh, the white caps were everything in my life. So my father was the head of the uh, Whitecaps Supporters Club. And so we were every, every Whitecaps game, the, the post-game celebration, my father was the one that put it on and, and ran the Supporters Club. And so we were with the, the Whitecap players 
all growing up. Um, it was like such an amazing experience because I, I literally got to be around them all the time and they were in my house for dinner and um, they'd come in the backyard with me. And, um, you know, it, it leads me to, um, you know, back in the day when Peter Beersley came to the Whitecaps, he immediately became my favorite player and immediately I, you know, mimicked my game around him and his work rate and his, his just love of the game, um, was was amazing it's, it's why i became a you know i've always been my father was a man united fan i've always been a man united fan from that but i was also a newcastle fan because of peter beardsley because when he went back to england he played for for newcastle and it was uh so so the whitecaps were incredibly monumental to my my youth and so coming into my older years when I was U15, U16, I was not only playing club, I was also playing on the Whitecaps reserve team. And that's that was the find from Clive because our director for the reserve team was a scout for years and knew Clive Charles. And that's how uh, Peter Field and I got connected to the Portland Pilots. Yeah, go ahead and transition. So the Whitecaps have been monumental. Yeah, it- Take it that way, because my next question was going to be how you ended up at UP. Yeah, and so John Burns was our um, um, director for the the Whitecaps reserves, and he was uh, always looking out for us and trying to figure out how to how to get the most from uh, for us. Um, at the time that Peter and I went to Portland, it was the the pipeline wasn't to go to the U.S. It was to go play for UBC or Simon Fraser. More, more than not, at that time, was Simon Fraser. Um, and to be fair, I think we were, Peter and I were both pretty scathed on the, in the newspapers back home, um, for kind of selling out and going to the U S and overlooking our, you know, local universities. And, um, you know, I, I look back at those days and I remember reading a couple articles that I was super bummed about because they, they didn't reach out to us to ask us why we were making the decision that we made. Um, they just, you know, wrote the the article. And, uh, you know, I, I remember when, when it came up my freshman year and, and I remember I showed Clive and, and, and Clive just kind of, you know, he, he laughed and, you know, did his typical, you know, made light of it and yada, yada, yada. And, but when it's your country and it, you know, I'm like, well, is this going to affect me ever making the national team? Is this going to affect me? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, as much as it's, you know, I love my decision. I, I you know, it, it caught me off. And so, uh, you know, Clive was, was monumental in making me fully aware that, you know, if I do my job and I'm good enough, I'll get my shot. And he will make sure that I get that shot. Um, just as he told Tiffany Milbritt when Anson Dorrance said to her, you're not, you know, if you don't come to Carolina, you're not going to get in the national team. And Clive looked at her and said, that's, that's not true. He, it's impossible. And he will have to look at her. And, and of course she did. And, and as did candidate for us. So Clive was yeah. my email for that too. She, she did go on to score a hundred goals for the national team and a few, you know, when maybe a, a world goals. cup and a uh, Olympics. A few goals. So a couple of things she, no she did, right. So aside from uh, paving the path for Christine Sinclair to go to the University of Portland, 
you and Peter Fear. That's a joke because I mean she yeah. probably would have gone wherever, right? But she's anyway she from the same area. Um, something that strikes me right now is the idea of culture and how strong culture was coming. I mean, as a country, soccer was kind of a big deal there as well, right on the west side. But also, mm -hmm. um, as that comes from the Whitecaps and accessibility to the NASL teams, I'm curious because uh, they're right here. They are writing about you know basically what we'd call high school kids going to college right and it's a big deal uh, so that says something about the strength of the sport and the culture so why did you and peter end up choosing the university of portland clive i mean it's a it, it is literally as simple as that i mean honestly he could have been at any school i love um the university of portland i love the campus i love the small size i knew i knew i needed you know, a small um, campus that I was going to be academics. I, I was coming to play soccer. I'm, I'm going to not tell a lie. I was, I was coming to play soccer and and, and kind of get my degree as a uh, side note. And uh, so that the, the number one was what was Clyde. His, his just ability to um, make you feel good about who you are and um, I just had full confidence that he was the guy to take us to the next next level, and 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 he did that in no joke one meeting. Like yes, we had the whole weekend, but we spent most of our time with with the players. And uh, but in the short period of time I was with Clive, it was it was really evident that that this was going to be home. I'm going to jump forward a lot because I want to talk also about transferability we mentioned right now that you're coaching at new mexico state university and i think it's a responsibility and a challenge to work with uh young men and young women who are you know 17 18 19 years old and help them with a pretty big decision right where they're going to be sort of taking the next step and coming into their own is there anything you've taken from clive that i mean i'm sure the answer is yes everything but uh, <laughs> specifically right when you're sitting across the desk or you know, you have a recruit come in for a visit and you're thinking, how can I help this young person make the best choice for them? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've said this, I've said this multiple times that Clive is, you know, obviously he shaped so many of our, our realms and, and, and how we are my, my whole world and how I run everything is, is based off of what, you know, obviously the game has changed that's X's and O's. The, the personability and being a good human is always the same. That's never going to change. And I think one of the things that, that, you know, Clive always made sure that we were aware of is just accountability. You know, if you if you just take accountability of everything you're doing, um, good and bad, you know, it, it you're, you're going to find yourself in a good place. I think the recruiting side of it is probably one of my favorite parts of college coaching. Um, I love, obviously, I love people and I love meeting people and um, trying to figure out who fits what, you know, I think it's, it's one of the, one of the best things that I, I learned from my UP days was as good as we were in 1988, we were still very good in 89 and 90. And as we went through, but you're never going to ever have the same team as you did the year before. It always is going to change, it, which is what I, what it is. A bummer a little bit about it but it, what's exciting about college is you have to figure out how to reinvent yourself every year and and yet 
can I keep that same culture? Will these, what will these five new players coming in, what's their effect on culture, chemistry, um, style of play, um, you know, just who we are as a, as a, as a program. And I, I love trying to swing that into the recruiting world where, okay, what are we looking for? Are we truly replacing? I mean, next year I, I won't replace Loma McNeese with a, with a freshman. I'm going to replace Loma McNeese with a sophomore that's had a couple of years. It's that sophomore I'm trying to replace with the freshman and, and kind of looking at how that, um, and so finding that right, uh, high school junior that comes because it's almost every junior that we're looking at to make a decision in the women's game, which agree or disagree. It's, it is what it is, um, is having them sit across from us and them fitting us as much as us fitting them. You know, I think my goal is to make the portal a non-factor in our lives. I want you to choose NMSU because that's the school for you. Um, if I have to convince you to come here and you're unsure, there's a, there's a, there's a chance now that in a year or two, when things aren't going great, that you, you're going to jump in the portal. And so we, we try as hard as we can to kind of vet our players on who will fit us at NMSU. Um, and I've had, I've had players that have come on a visit and, you know, that just didn't fit with the team and, Physically, as a soccer player, they would have fit great. But as a as a person, just didn't quite fit who we are, and and we moved on. And and I think those are very important um, moments to stop the the relentless portal world. You know, I think. Right. However, that I think that truly starts at the top down. Anyways, from power five down to us, trickles down through us, but. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So we have to be as good as we possibly can on the recruiting trail to pick the right people so that they stay for four years. Yeah. So you mentioned, I mean, the portal wasn't something, I mean, that's, that's relatively new for, I mean, I think even post COVID-19 pandemic, that's something that's really yeah. changed recently, but back in 1987, and you mentioned we were good in 88, 89 and 90 in 1987, your freshman year, it wasn't, there wasn't a portal. It was kind of, you had to do things the old fashioned way, word of mouth, you know, on prove it on the field. And when you got a commitment, you got a commitment. There's one game that I think changed the university of Portland soccer and soccer in Portland, because of, as we'll kind of talk about in, in a, in, like, I don't know how else it could have happened, but it was the Notre Dame game. And I've mentioned that before your freshman year, partially Joey talked about it because he was a recruit there at the time, Sam Singer, um, you know, you get Casey Keller, uh, Trent Schultz, et cetera, the next year. I know I'm leaving people out and I apologize. E. McLean. Sorry, E. McLean. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that game and what that did for the University of Portland? And then uh, let's move into the 88 season as well. 100%. That, I mean, you hit it on the nail. That, that game put us on the map. I mean, there were seven in the country at the time. We were, you know, a, you know, little liberal arts school in the, West Coast that had no respect from anybody and, you know, a hundred percent no respect from Notre Dame. Um, I think they came in thinking this was going to be a walk in the park and 
um, they found out real fast that that was not the case. And, and uh, you know, I think it was, uh, I mean, just a true game changer that put us on a trajectory heading right into 1988. I think between that, honestly, the, the probably you look at getting a, a Leonetti, a Sam Singer, a Casey Keller, and an Ian McLean. I mean, we're talking game-changing humans that come into your your world and really were the kind of, you know, not necessarily missing parts because, you know, Greg did a great job for us in, in, in goal. Um, you know, Greg Jeff got hurt, so it was kind of one of those. Yeah, I mean, he was great for us. Um, you know, I think what, what, what Casey brought was that national team experience that helped us you know, in the future with bringing in a Yari, bringing in a, you know, just nonstop with Sorrento. It just, it just kind of started that whole flow and it all stems back to the Notre Dame game. And so it just kind of put us into that realm for, you know, cause no one, even, even going, you know, even going into 1988, wasn't like we started that season off going, Oh, we're going to go undefeated. It, it, it wasn't even close to thinking that way. It just happened. We just kept winning and we kept I mean, I don't know how many of those games in 88 we won one nothing. I want to believe that there was probably a solid eight games that were 1-0. And we had no problem taking a 1-0 win. And, and you know, I, I talk about it all the time with our um, our women here at NMSU. When we when we won the WAC and we won 1-0, 1-0, 1-0 in, in the tournament, I'm not going to tell a lie. That was, yes, I was Im- immensely happy we won and went to the tournament. But I was even more happy about winning one zero. I to me, I just think it's the it's just such a satisfying win as a coach. When you can win one zero, you can win any game. Because yeah. you're A, you're not getting scored on, and you're just a you're just a all around tough to beat team. And that's what I called ourselves in in, in 2022 and 23. We were just tough to beat. And that's who we were in 88. We I mean, we had I, I talk about this with, all the time with our our teammate, especially Trent Schultz, because he's with us down here now. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, when you mention his name, I'm I'm dying laughing because the the full circle that has happened is just it's literally hysterical. Um, but but the going back to the '88 group, you know, it honestly felt like we had an extra player on the field because of the way we played. We had such a good team chemistry, such a good uh, culture of how we defended that our attack started immediately from our defense. And it was always with numbers because we could, we could attack from a great spot because the other team was losing the ball from an offensive position and we'd kill them. Um, so yeah, yeah, you mentioned that 88 started out. It, it was USF and UNLV were like right out of the, the gates too. And it seems like a philosophy I've heard a lot about Clive is if you're going to, if you're going to be the best, you need to just, you need to play the best and Let's you just go. need to see what you're made of. Yeah. And that's, I'll tell you right now, it is why, I mean, my administration looks to me and they're like, are you nuts? I mean, our, our opening game is USC women. And so that's, it's like, I, I'm not changing a thing from what Clive taught me. And that's, you're going to be the best. You'll play the best. I don't care who it is. You know, our women back at, at UP days when we started getting good and we were going to play, I remember us playing North Carolina and I remember Clive talking to the girls and saying, Hey, we can sit in and lose two zero or we can try and play and move forward in the game. And we ended up, I think we ended up losing seven one, but we scored and that goal 
was what we needed to say we're, we can play with them and, right. and i think that that's kind of where we we here at nmsu are doing the exact same thing and you know our last three non-conference seasons have been one of the better non-conference schedules in the country great and so that 88 team uh i mentioned earlier 21 wins in a row made it to the um final four lost 1-0 to indiana at indiana um a game that should have been played at UP, but the field wasn't right. You couldn't host the final four as the top seed because the field wasn't playable. And that sort of yeah. turned into getting Merlot. And I think later we're going to talk about that kind of stuff in coaching college, the the PR, the the program building that has nothing to do with people building. Uh, directly. Correct. Correct. Talk, can you tell me what that 88 season was like and sort of getting toward the end as you, you just keep winning, you beat UCLA, you beat Fresno State and you're in the final four. Yeah, it was uh, pretty surreal, to be fair. Um, I bet you there isn't one of us that don't remember 90% of it. I, I just, it was such an amazing uh, process that, again, we, we were never cocky. We were never, we never felt like we were, we felt going into, even going into Indiana, even going down 1-0, we never at any point felt like we were going to lose that game. None of us right to the last minute. And it was, you know, it was kind of like, we don't lose. So it was, it just, we, 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 we found an error of ourselves that again, I don't believe was cocky. I believe it was confident and, and just, we, we truly played very, very hard as a team. I mean, I, going back, I want to say that we only had seven goals scored on us the entire year. And, I don't know where that fits in the grand scheme of all time, but it's got to be pretty decent as far as goals against average. I mean, obviously having Casey helped that because the one, the one thing that Casey brought was he brought a presence and he also brought a big save at a moment, at a critical moment where we could go down and score. Mm. And I think that was another big factor for our 88 team. And we just had it. We had, I mean, honestly, if you go back to our 88 team, I honestly can tell you, I, I think we only had 18 players on the roster. 18 who contributed and so too. that was the interesting thing that's what i'm saying it was it was full 18 and all of all of us were part of the whole thing and and i think it was just uh you look at today's world where people where we carry 30 players on a roster we don't play saturday sunday we play thursday sunday i mean it's it's what we did in that at that time was was remarkable in my in my eyes now when i look at what we do now and so uh I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I mean, some of the players you played with, you mentioned Casey and Joey also said that the huge thing for him was if a ball's coming in, he's not going to just save it. He's going to catch it. And yeah, so if a it, ball's coming in, you just start running because you know, he's a going to catch it and B is going to find you just like yeah. that. And so if you don't do that, you're behind yeah. the game. Uh, but that, yeah. that, that side, you know, Wade Weber, who's now with the, the Sounders, another solid player, right? Uh, Jimmy Weber, Rob Sakamoto, some, some guys from Washington, I mean, when you just, if you just went down and cataloged the people who you played with in that season, it's pretty amazing. It's, 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 uh, it's incredible. Like it, it we, I mean, it, it comes up every single time we can, we're all still buds. It's like, it's, it's, it's like nothing changed. We could all talk about the same things, talk about the same games. We all remember the same things. It's, it's pretty incredible. And, and, you know, the, the Robbie Sachs, the Jimmy Weber's, the, you know, I, I look back at the 88 season and I don't call us 
the most, I don't think we were necessarily the most talented, maybe technical team, but we were the best team. Um, we had, we had everyone that knew their roles. You know, you take a Joe Holloway who would play in the six. And I mean, you want to talk about if I got kicked, Joe was smashing someone. Wade was smashing someone. Uh, Ian was smashing someone. You know, it was, it was, I felt protected just out of, dude, you kick me that your four is going to get wrecked. Just FYI. And, and, and we just had an unsaid sense of camaraderie that did just, again, I mean, I'll, I'll take Sam Singer, Wade Weber, Ian McLean, Garrett Smith back line with Casey and goal in today, like any, any, any time of the year, like it's just that back line was so solid. And then you, you, you add the Sakamoto's, the Holloway's, the Jimmy Weber's in the middle and just the, the blue collar world with, with, with good, strong technical ability was, was amazing. And then you, you know, you just, you had Scott Benedetti who was just, you know, a freak at that time as an athlete and just, it was, truly remarkable like I, I it's it's something i'll cherish for the rest of my life it's you know it's it's sad that we lost because i felt like we were you know the the semis was the final for sure the the other two teams it just it was really a non-factor i think it was going to be um the winner of our game was gonna, i think indiana made one of final three zero or something but it was yeah they beat howard right yeah it was just our our discipline would have wrecked both of those teams in my opinion but it was it was truly just one of the most remarkable teams I've ever been a part of. And it's, you know, I think we're, you know, when I talk to the the likes of Joe or, or, or Trent or anybody, it's, we go back to it and start talking about, you know, had the good old days when we, you know, destroyed it and yeah. no one can ever take that away from us. So I joked earlier about, you know, when I watched you when I was a kid, but I was, I did watch those games cause I grew up down the street and I, Watching that season, watching the the Billbrook Field get just bigger and bigger and more crowded and more crowded, and it was the type of place where a fan could be, you know, three or four yards from the sideline. And so here's all these players you just mentioned, and being that close as a younger person, watching someone like Casey Keller just clean people, right, and just like all these massive. Hey, Ray Fernandez, thank you very um, much. Yeah, right. Uh, but it was just it was an amazing thing, and it wasn't just you know the team on the field, but it just to see a community come around that. And to see what the sport did for um, that area, not just North Portland, but Portland. Um, it was a pretty amazing time. What's interesting to me is, as you're talking about all these names and all these players, we're talking 1988, 1989. There wasn't a national professional league. Major League Soccer is still the World Cup. Major League Soccer, these things are half a decade or more away. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of the Western Soccer Alliance. And so there was FC Portland. Uh, and it turned into Art Dixon brought back the name, Portland Timbers. And there was a lot of time and money, uh, effort, labor invested in trying to create a professional environment when there wasn't one. And so when we think of these names, you think of a guy like Casey Keller, he went over to Millwall. He could. But that opportunity, the opportunity that's here now didn't exist. What was the Western Soccer Alliance and other you know, alliances of that nature? Because there were a few iterations. What was that like? Um Providing up first of all, what was it like? Can you kind of explain it to people? And then what was it like for you uh, and people of your age where you're at this certain level, but there's no next step? Yeah, for sure. It was, uh, to be fair, you know, I, I look back and thank Art 
many a times for, for, for bringing that back, um, that, that environment for especially, um, the, the five of us that, that got to partake in, in that summer season was, um, so incredible because we just, we just continued what we were doing in 88, you know, it was, it was right into the summer of 89. I, I'll never forget making the phone call to my parents saying, Hey, just FYI, I'm not coming home. I'm staying here playing for the Timbers. And of course my family were like, Oh hell yeah, we're going to come watch. And so it was, uh, you know, it was, um, it was truly an, a, an amazing, um, summer. We, we, we literally had a blast, you know, cause you know, John Bain brought back, you know, players that, that were pro level players that, that were part of that. And, you know, we had, we had a Dick McCormick from, from Warner who, who had a great pro career. Um, you know, we just, we just had great guys within, uh, in that environment that we just kind of continued our 88 season from the five or six guys that came from UP added some, some, you know, kind of pro knowledge with, with, with Bainey and them. And it was, it was the recipe for a great season. You know, I think it's, uh, it really helped keep continuing my world of knowing this is what I want. I want to play at the next level. And so we think about, uh, when I get excited about that type, and I want to add some context for people too, is, uh, what that was was you could have professional players, but you also could have amateurs. So the, the people from the NCAA could play, but you could only have five from a school. You couldn't have more than that. So there could be five guys from the University of Portland, which there were. There could be five guys from Warner Pacific, Bernie Fagan coach. So we're talking more former Timbers. Uh, John Bain was involved, but there could also be professionals. And I remember at one point uh, Wade Weber saying to me, it was just it was huge to see what it was like and to have a like you just didn't get access to a professional environment. You didn't see what it was going to be like. Um, and you already mentioned Dick McCormick, who's a great player, uh, you know, Benedetti. Uh, I think Brent Goulet was involved in that as well. It was uh, uh, Grant Gibbs. Um, I mean, you could go back to those, those, those years and it was, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty remarkable. And it's exactly what you said. It, it gave us a taste of, of the pro world when it, it wasn't really pro for us. It was, it was, it was just giving us a view of what that looks like. And um, I think it was, just getting that taste for it made us all want to go play. Mm -hmm. And it was provided by people who weren't making money off it. In fact, the opposite. Correct. Uh, it was costly. It was costly and it was because they wanted to build the game. I mean, that was, yeah. I think when I go, when I still go now to the, to, when I go to Providence park, I think of that era a lot uh, because it just, it did so much to, to hold serve in this area. I totally agree. It, it, it and it, I mean, it, it, it started the Timbers back off again and, and you look at them now and it's, it's, I take pride in it all the time to know that I was still part of that inauguration to bring the Timbers back and, yeah. and, and started again. And I think it's, uh, you know, I, I, I watch, I actually got Apple TV just so I could watch my Timbers games down here and it's, I'll always be a part of it and always feel a part of it. As you are. And I want to say, Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking a lot about the Timbers, and I hope there are some contemporary listeners now. When the Portland Timbers came back for the second iteration, 1989, the first goal was, in the first game was scored by Rob Bartz. And you remember that goal. You were telling I me do. you remember that goal. Walk me through I that. I do. The, the, cool, the cool part about, about that game is the, the California kickers were largely, their, their players were coming from UCLA, which were, you know, obviously our, our rival. 
And I think, uh, you know, winning that game just kind of kept adding to the fact that we're on top of you. We're, we're, we're coming. And, uh, yeah, the goal was scored. That, that whole game was actually quite hysterical. It, it actually, uh, the, the pregame was, was a hysterical part. I got to add this for Jimmy because if I didn't, I'd, I'd feel like I missed something. But we, we, would, we would kick a ball into the crowd, souvenir ball, to start the game. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we all come, after we all kick a ball out, we all come back to the, to the middle to do the anthem. And <laughs> Jimmy comes back and he goes, oh, my God, I, I just smacked some lady right in the face with a ball. Oh, you killed her. And I was like, dude, that sucks. Played the game. We won. We had our post-game uh, celebration that, that the Timbers always did. And my dad walks up and goes, oh, one of your players hit the ball right in your mom's face. And I'm like, oh, Jimmy, you hit my mom, you donkey. <laughs> that was pretty funny. But, uh, yeah, he, uh, we had a free kick wide about uh, 40 yards out. And Jimmy bent in a ball over the top of the line. And I had gotten in behind and just remember the ball bouncing. And the keeper kind of came into no man's land and just kind of poked it over him with my head. And the game was over. That was another one nothing win. Another one nothing win. I remember Casey Keller saying in the paper that it wasn't uh, – I mean, he had to make some saves, but he said the hardest part about that game wasn't physical. It was mental because the whole game was played in the center of the field. And I can also yeah. imagine the players who were playing at that time not being used to, you know, the turf that was at Civic. I just can imagine the ball being out of bounds a lot too. It's, it's hysterical. I actually remember a goal that I scored against uh, David Vinoli in that that year. Um, ball was, was kind of – bouncing across me and I went to hit a left-footed volley and I was all I could think about was Clive saying get over it get over it don't hit it over don't hit it over and I drove it right back into the ground and it caught the edge of the dirt and the and the turf and it popped straight over his head and just <laughs> rolled in he was so peeved because he was he was our national team coach at the, our national team goalkeeper at the time yeah. and he was unhappy at that and uh, blamed the turf. And I was yeah. like, hey, come on, man. Goal's a goal, dude. Goal's a goal. Thank you, third base cutout. <laughs> Thank you. Stadium, right? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so what? Okay, so that's 1989, and you you graduated UP in 1990. You didn't play for the Portland Pride until 1993 because it didn't exist. What yeah. was that? What did you do in that window? And how how do you go from playing at a really yeah. highly successful college yeah. program to having to, to stay fit and, and active to be able to start a professional career almost four years later. Yeah, for sure. I, here's, I really, that's, that was when I shaped my coaching world. Um, I, I kind of, you know, you mentioned it earlier, the landscape was a little, was a, was a little, was a lot different back then when we just didn't have, you know, right out of um, finishing my, 90 senior season um clive became the seattle sounders coach because he could do both at the time and uh was signing me to go play for seattle my parents had a cabin in bellingham i was going to go live up there it was perfect and uh unfortunately it, it it didn't survive and uh and so i started in i was doing a camp for up that summer and a fellow from um, the Bay Area, Jim Thompson, who runs Positive Coaching Alliance, um, was up meeting with um, Joe Etzel, our athletic director at the time, and was looking for a 
kind of Portland area coordinator for the Positive Coaching Alliance, which is a nonprofit based out of Stanford at the time um, that was 100% based on, you know, getting back to a, a positive world of coaching and not, you know, win at all costs mentality. And, you know, there's a better way to get your messages across. And, and what it was, was a, I ran, I would sign clubs and, and leagues and come in and run workshops for the players, for the coaches and for the parents. Um, and it, and it ended up being, you know, a two years of, you know, eye-opening experience to go run workshops all over the West coast, Hawaii, all over the place. And, and just kind of, you know, give back to the community as well as when you're, when you're running these workshops, you're getting feedback from all these coaches and constantly learning. And so, you know, I, I really look at those two years as a, as a massive learning experience in the coaching world for me. And, you know, I, I look back to those, those days and, you know, thank Jim Thompson for the world for, for making me a part of that and allowing me to be a part of, you know, that environment. I've tried to get back into it and be just a, a presenter. And I just, unfortunately that the, the time is, is really tough to, to commit to it and do what I do as right now, but it's, it's a tremendous organization and it's still, still rolling. He's still killing it with it. And it's, uh, you know, obviously 30 years later and still doing a great job. Still needed. Still very much so needed. Tell you Everybody after. goes out there. I was just in my kids' youth tournament, and wow. Yeah. I listened to a mom yell at her daughter to be a bully. Yeah. She's like, come on, be a bully. What? I was like, what? She's eight years old, lady. Like, what? Yeah. We got some work to do. Yeah. It never ends. So how did, so then in 1993, how does the opportunity come up to play Portland Pride? And had you played indoor soccer before that? Nope. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, I, I remember the day vividly. It was, I was literally, uh, I had applied for just a regular sales job, Pacific Automation offices. And they had literally offered me the job that morning I was uh, kind of talking to my wife about it, but you know that I that I you know I'm going to accept it and yada yada yada. And got a phone call from Brian Parrott, the owner of the the Portland Pride. When at that point it was it was nothing; it was a, an idea for him. And he had called and asked if I would jump on board and help him create the Portland Pride and 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 put it together from the soccer side and. Uh, um, it was pretty funny because this this process, when you kind of had mentioned, you know, we, we, we talk about some of the things that you know, would happen in what you do in 93. I was starting to think about this yesterday and started laughing because I was part of helping Brian put the, the thing together from from the coaching staff to the marketing staff to, you know, what it looked like. We went to Dallas to watch a Dallas sidekicks game and, and steal ideas from them. And, you know, ultimately me, me telling Brian, you got to figure out how to get John Bain. Cause John Bain was an assistant at Portland at the time. And I was like, gosh, how are we going to get him from Portland? He's, he's in a really good place, you know? And, and it's funny because I'm looking at it going, okay, hang on a second. I'm trying to get Bainey to come coach the Portland pride and then hope that he hires me 
as a player right. because I was kind of on the marketing side with the full mentality of being a player as well. And, and that's how it started. He, he made the call to me and I said, well, here's what my offer was at Pacific Automation. If you can match that, I'll go, I'll go do soccer instead. And so the rest was history. And you put together, oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that, right? To me, it was just, I thought you just played. I didn't yeah, know you no, had a hand in both. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually a super, super eye-opening experience because I'd never seen that side of it. Brian was very good at, I mean, he was a marketer. He was, he had done, you know, the, the massive basketball uh, tournament that we had. I can't remember the name of it right offhand. Um, the Farmer's Classic? Yeah, might have been the Forest Classic, and then and, the, and then he brought in U.S. Open tennis. He brought in uh, like just some incredible events, and so he was an event guy, thinking, okay, what's missing in Portland? This you know, we we don't have anything in the in the summertime, and oddly enough, he he came up with indoor, and it was end up killing it. I mean, it was it was super fun. Yeah, that was a big draw for the. Uh, just to add some context for for people who made out of i don't know why you wouldn't have listened to all the other episodes i've done but uh you know just the the continental Indoor soccer league a lot of people who owned arenas looked at open dates in the summer and thought this is a good thing to fill those dates because the, the arenas are just sitting there right and so, so uh, up the arizona sand sharks they were i mean who what are they what, what you gotta go indoor what are you gonna do in the summertime there right. <laughs> so how did you uh yeah. So how did you put together that team? I didn't know this, so I didn't have this as a question, but that's a good team. There were some really good players awesome. on there. Some guys from the Seattle Tacoma area, some Portland guys. That was all Beanie. Uh, we got, we got, we got John on board first and then, and then uh, John did just, he did, he did such a good job of, of putting that team together. I mean, it was, it was fun to watch. We, we, literally had desks that faced each other. And, you know, I was, we, John and I were doing, uh, say no to drugs clinics at, at elementary schools. Um, we were, you know, doing so much out in the community to try and get the, that part of it lifted off the ground. At the same time, John was, you know, behind the scenes, you know, trying to pull in some veteran players, you know, like your, you know, Ralph Black's, your Billy Crooks, your Neil Megsons. And then you, you surround those guys with, you know, young players like us that were eager to get back at the game and get after it. You know, it was, uh, I thought he did a really, really tremendous job of putting a good combination of, of youth and experience together and, and making a good team. Yeah, that was a fun squad. And it's interesting to hear the same things that went on in 1975, 20 years later, doing the same for the indoor game, right? You've got people who are on the field doing the job, but they're off the field building the game. Yeah, and sure. being in the community, and that was something that's a parallel I see between the two. That, of course, the time was different. You could do that, but there was a lot of interaction, just like you had with the Whitecaps. Like there was, you know, accessibility, uh, interaction, and uh, you know that begets people to be in the game for their lives. Hundred percent. I, I actually look back, and I said this to multiple people. The cool part about the Portland Pride Pythons world was that we were accessible. We were we were part of the community. We were part of. Most of us were coaching a club. We were, you know, we were we were doing stuff within the community at all times. And I, I just feel like, you know, not that the, not that the Blazers didn't do stuff, but it was they were untouchable. And we were we were just I feel like we were just a part of the the fabric of of the community. And it just I think it it just made it. A, I, I still to this day will be in Portland. 
the store and someone will say, Oh my God, I loved watching your games back in the day. And, and, you know, for me to hear that after 30 years, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And, and, you know, for my kids who are grown up now to, to hear that it's, it's, it's super cool. And I think it just, I think it, it left a mark on a lot of people, I think for a lot of years. Yeah. And part because necessity, right. We weren't making a lot. So you had to be doing other things and what else would fit around playing soccer, right. Uh, You know, doing camps, coaching. Um, Yep. Interestingly enough, we talk about generations. I'm looking and obviously we're just doing this on audio, but I see behind you uh, a fantastic picture that is your university of Portland Jersey on top of your son's university of Portland Mm -hmm. Jersey. And I think that's the coolest thing, but you also had a, a nephew, right. Who went there. Yep. Yeah, I was. Uh, I'm, I'm so fortunate to have had that ability to, you know, not only see my son go through my alma mater, but to actually be there and coach as well was 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 super cool. And and then to have my, you know, my nephew, you know, who a great story of my nephew is um, when he was two years old, I had given him a pair of of little sambas in a little Adidas box and I put on it, uh, you know, whatever, I can't remember what the year would have been that he would have been a recruit would have been 2009 or something, but I, whatever it was that he was coming into Portland from being two, I wrote on the box university of Portland recruit 2000, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and boom, ended up being at Portland, which was, yeah. was, it was unbelievable. Like it was a super cool story. That's great. In NAI, that's not a recruiting violation, by the way. I don't know, about... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I wasn't part of the coaching staff at the time I gave him the shoes, so perfect. <laughs> well, now you could make money off it, right? Like he probably could have gotten <laughs> an NIL. Yeah, totally. So totally. let's. Um, I want to. I want to go back to that era of ninety, say ninety-seven. So the pride was going on. The pride went through ninety-seven. The Pythons in ninety-eight. But what's interesting to me is also Major League Soccer starts in nineteen ninety-six, and so. For someone of your level when you're playing, and now we've got a a national league, we're a few years past the World Cup. um, And a lot of guys even were weighing, do I do I want to do indoor and, you know, lower level outdoor? I can't do MLS and indoor. Like the decisions when Major League Soccer started were different for different players and different than it is now. Um, But also for you, who you've started, you know, you've got four years into a professional soccer career now. Major League Soccer pops up. You're not, you know, you're not young, but you're not old. Yeah. What was that? What was that era like for you making decisions as a player? Totally. Well, my, for me, it was, it was pretty simple because of, of my family and and we were embedded in Portland. Um, I was playing indoor, making it a, a, a decent salary at that time and, and coaching club and being a part of FC Portland. Um, and then obviously I had my family there because when the MLS first started, you know, uh, in the, in an in initial draft, uh, I think it was might have been Jimmy, myself, Jimmy Clark, um, and God, who else was it? I can't remember. We were originally uh, um, drafted by San Jose, and the the salary at that time for a youth level player coming in was like twenty thousand dollars or something, and it was you know like massively less than what we were making playing indoor. And so it's kind of one of those, would I rather play outdoor? Probably. Can I, and actually make that work? Probably not. 
And so it was, the, the decision was more made for most of us um, as opposed to what we really would have wanted to do. Um, and again, that's not to knock indoor because we, you know, I love my indoor career, um, but it wasn't, I didn't grow up going, hope I get to play indoor for the rest of my life. Right. It was, no, I, <laughs> believe it or not, because we had the Tacoma Stars and Ralph Black and uh, Billy Crook and Tattoo would come, Precky. But anyway, yeah. so, but, but, I'm an point, outlier. Point. I'm an outlier. <laughs> but it was, and again, I don't, I, I, I'm never going to knock it because I had, I, I really had an amazing time and enjoyed my career. And it was, you know, I, 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 I look back and, you know, people always ask me if I regret never you know, trying to make it in England or, or making it in the outdoor world. And I'm like, you know, at the time it just wasn't the right timing for it. And, you know, we, we had to do what we had to do and indoor was there and provided for my family. And it was, you know, I, I really, truly enjoyed it. Yeah. Such an important time. And I, I don't want to say generation because it makes it sound like it's a larger group than it is. It's a pretty small, but significant window. And even, uh, when I asked Tony Miola, I was interviewing him about the shootout, the 35 yard shootout. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about the na- the game in Trinidad and Tobago. And he was like, yeah. look, the day before we're, I'm going to soccer practice. And then I'm going to the batting cages because baseball might be the path. <laughs> we're t- it's a pretty significant figure in American soccer. Who's, I, I don't know I mean, what tomorrow sure is. Going. Yeah. Totally. So it's I get true. it. So 97, the pride go away, but then this, this beautiful thing, um, comes called the Portland Pythons. Can you talk about the Pythons? It's a two-year team. It only ran for two years. Um, yeah. You know, honestly, I I was I was so stoked that we kept it alive and kept it going. And 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 you know, the the Pythons was that was a fun group. I mean, that was another kind of reinvention of what we'd already tried to accomplish. And I think it was. Um, you know the 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 craziness of of Ralph Black and his ideas and let's go and you know I I always you know respected what he did on the field and he was you know a, a definitive wackadoodle but at the same time you know put us in a in a in a place where we you never knew what you're going to get and he brought in you know the likes of yourself and people that just came, were a huge part of everything we did in the community and in Portland and. There was a lot of great dudes in that group that came in, and you know, I think it's again just can't say enough about us trying to keep that going and 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 keep it alive and and roll right into the pythons. Yeah, and so that goes pythons two years. The league goes away. The league collapses, but then opportunities there in Utah. So this is your your last stop on your career, right? There's still a chance to keep playing, and you know, we talked about having to stay in local. But now when there are no opportunities uh, locally, right? This is also a year the Portland Timbers weren't back yet. This is 2000. How did you end up at the freeze? And what was that that year like? Because you had to make some, you know, you had to make some choices. You had to get to live in Utah. Not easy. Uh, honestly, it was uh, really, really a difficult decision. Um, you know, I don't know that I make, the same decision without it being Jeff Betts as the head coach oh, no, um, no. convincing me to come. I think it was because originally my, my rights went to Arizona and I had gone to visit and it was like, Oof, you know, is this, is this, could I really do this path? I don't know. Yada, yada, yada. 
and Jeff called and because he found out that I went and visited Arizona and was like, well, hey, if I can trade for your rights, will you come play here instead? And my at that time, um, Kathy, my wife, worked for Boise Cascade, which had a branch in Salt Lake. And so the thought was, well, we could just possibly move there. And, and um, what we ended up ultimately deciding was that I would just go play the season and um, Kathy, Tyler, and Tanner would stay in Portland and, and she would stay with her job there. And that's, that's what ended up, um, you know, making a, a difficult decision to keep the career going and, and kind of borrow Billy's car while I'm in Portland and switch cars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to tell you how often I, I dozed <laughs> off driving your car from Portland to Utah uh, because eventually it made it. So <laughs> it's a non-story, but there were some uh, moments. Yeah, so However, Utah. I, did, yeah. I will tell everyone out there while this whole thing happened and I'm borrowing Billy's Volvo back in Portland, uh, I got a photo radar ticket. It's definitely me that gets sent yeah. to Billy. He's like, hey, any chance you got a ticket in my car? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep, that was me. Yeah, but we didn't have to pay it because it wasn't me. I can it prove me. it wasn't me. So yeah, no problem there. So the, the one-year freeze um, and then you know, you came back and you, this is, we're working through, you know, the end here. Uh, yep. And I want to say real quick, the Utah freeze, Jeff Betts as a coach was fantastic. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned him and uh, I went there. Nick was, Nick Forberg was there. Um, and there was actually a practice. Jeff came up to me at the start of practice and said, um, do you want to go play for Arizona? He's like, they, you know, they want to trade for you. So I could get, I could actually have played more, could have made more. And I said, no. Uh, yeah, just because it mattered to be there. Kevin Leg, uh, yeah, it was you know, it was and it was fun just, group, Stuart Dobson was there. Matt brought it. There's just a lot of really good guys. Uh, yeah, and you know, what was the difference going to be really? Yeah, no, I, I totally, I, I think it's a, a wise decision because you know, I always say to people, grass isn't always greener. Sometimes you know, it may seem like it is, and and it's just not. And that's what you know. I I think that Jeff brought a kind of continued element of what we built with the Pythons and you know, it was, it was with a lot of really young, talented Utah players that really made it, you know, super fun. The, the, the kicker on that one was I came to Utah to be, to be a defender, which was a little bizarre twist to the, to the world of my career. Um, but I feel like indoor in the world of, I mean, even if you're a defender, you're not that far away from the goal. So it, right. I didn't really feel like it was that difficult to, but yeah, we're talking about Take a forward midfielder who becomes a defender, and not just a defender, the 2000 Western, uh, World Indoor Soccer League Defender of the Year. Yeah, it was, a, a, which I'm not sure it happened. I think it was mostly because whenever we played Dallas, I'd mark that too, and I would just talk to him the entire time, and <laughs> I don't think he liked it very much. But uh, I, I think I probably got the vote from him because he yeah. did not enjoy me kicking him because I kicked him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think so in two, a, in indoor, there's an element of, of, I think, when you have someone who's willing to defend this used to playing offensively, you're comfortable on the ball. And I think when you have comfortable people on the ball in the back line, I think it makes it a better environment and a better player, I guess, you can play in that spot as opposed to outdoor and you want to be a – you are a defender. What's well, huge, especially with such a small field, how do you stretch the other team? in a small field with a fast pace. And so if you can do that, it just, it makes your team more dynamic. 
Correct. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll say this, because uh, I think a lot of people, I don't know, I'll just say, I've never did more technical work as a professional than I did that year with Jeff, and I loved it. I loved it. There was so much time spent on, you know, just technical repetition and being right with everything. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, yeah, I, you know, the other part that on that is is John was, John Bain was very good at that too. We did a lot of technical ball striking, technical bringing balls down. Like, you know, the one thing I used to laugh with outdoor players coming into indoor is you, you touch better be pretty silky. Cause if, if you, you think a good touch in outdoor is not necessarily a good touch in indoor cause you have to keep it tight. And it was really important. And that's why I think Jeff really understood that. And he drove it home and we were good at it. So speaking of having to have a silky touch, you did return to civic stadium uh, and it's wonderful turf for one start of one season. The timbers are back 2001 uh, West Ham legend, Bobby Howe's coaching. That's the end of your playing career at that point. Um, can you yep. talk about what that was like? And it's actually your second stop with the Portland Timbers and your second time with yeah. the first time of the Timber, right? So it's yeah. an interesting moment. I know it's, it's that, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's tough, but it's significant too. Yeah, it's uh, it, 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 it came full circle to be fair. And I think at the end of the day, it was, uh, you know, I, I had, I had the, the oddest injury of, of all time. I, I had a, extremely painful it band on the side of my knee where it connected um and dr greenleaf was the doctor back then and he uh he had mentioned that you know you could do a it band release where he goes in and he just kind of puts he puts a hole in the it band and it stretches it and releases the pressure um so unfortunately it was kind of a, a bad timing because i ended up getting released at that time when i was injured and i was kind of like hey it's like i might i get surgery then like what's going on here i i it was a it's kind of a bit of a negative time in my life, to be fair. Um, I think it was the right time. I, I don't know that you ever say it's the right time to stop playing. You feel like you could play forever. Um, I think it helped to have, you know, kind of an injury to kind of say, okay, it's not going to get any easier to have, to not have injuries. So let's, let's move on to the next stage. And um, obviously that became UP and the coaching career. Yeah, and, and before we transition into that, I want to ask how hard, how many people do you know? You probably can't name them because there are so many that had to face a decision like that, where you know you are getting a little bit older. Uh, the the likelihood of injury is getting higher, but also with that comes okay if you do get surgery, if you do get something to correct it, the league or team may not be around. So you may be on Next. your own for your medical bills. That's another thing yeah. players of our era had to face that decision, right? How long do I keep yeah. going? With there's no promise that if something happens, I'm going to get compensated or even my medical bills covered. Um, and I know a yeah. lot of guys who ended their career pretty early because they were in that situation. Yeah. It's facts. I mean, we were in a time when you weren't sure if your paycheck was coming, right. you know I mean? I think it was, it was, you know, fortunately we, we, that never happened to me and you know, it was, but it was always a thought. It was always in the back of your head. And again, you, you the one thing about it, and I'll say this to everybody, the one thing about being a player and being a pro is you know your career is going to change. You are going to have a career change, whether it's from playing to coaching or into the regular workforce world, but you are definitely changing your careers. So let's talk about that career change. And I know that uh, this also, I think, coincided with another injury, but has to be the apex of your coaching career, the 1998 Donnelly Cup. Um, you know, I talked to Brownie about that, that a little bit too, and we had a good moment, but... Um, 
Yeah, how did that come about? Dude, we, I mean, the one thing that, that Clyde was so great about was he was trying to figure out ways of getting more touch times with us. You know, the NCAA does a very good job of, of stopping coaches from having more time with players. So Clyde decided he was going to start a state team, both the men and the women's state team. And uh, we ended up, um, both men and women, because it was under 23 team, so we could have older players up to that age and, and younger. And so we ended up going to regionals in Utah, winning regionals, and both men and women getting the, the, the shout to nationals, which was obviously the four regions. And in that time, I did my ACL indoor. Going back, it was a tackle with tattoo, which is shocking enough that he actually tackled anybody. But he did not, uh, probably. <laughs> right. So we end up, I end up doing my knee and, you know, Clive just said, Hey, I can't make it to the, to the thing. Why don't you, um, you know, you take the boys and Paul will take the girls. And I was like, done, let's do it. And, uh, man, what a, what a, what a blast that was. I mean, I think it was, uh, one of the greatest fun experiences for all involved, you know, going into the, to the final match where it's, cause it was all round Robin the final match was dependent upon what the other team did in the other game and watching Chris Brown keep looking over to the sideline and asking if he needs to score another goal. And we're like, yep, we need one more. And he'd go score another goal. And it was, uh, you know, going and winning both men and women was just so fun. Just what a great weekend. Well, and for us to be in Florida over Thanksgiving was nice too. I mean, right. dude, whatever, swimming with the sharks, like complete yeah. morons. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Getting stuck in an elevator. I mean, the whole nine yards thing was just epic. (laughs) That's where my claustrophobia comes from. So let's talk about. (laughs) Probably does. That wasn't fun. That part. Let's talk about coaching. Um, You started, you know, you got into FC Portland, which is a special club, I think, to anyone who who came through a similar trajectory that you did. Um, Can you take us into that in the University of Portland before we, we get into, you know, the post Portland coaching era? You. Yeah, for sure. To be fair, my, my coaching career started with uh, Bill Irwin getting Garrett Knight as coach at uh, PCU at Portland City United. That was my my inaugural uh, coaching time. I was 19 coaching U16 girls, which was an interesting thing in itself. Um, but it was two years there. And before, um, you know, Garrett and Mike Joyce started uh, Portland Mailing, which ended up becoming Portland Metro, which ended up becoming the girls side desk in Portland. And it just slid right into because at that time FC Portland was boys only, and uh, we just kind of slid right into that that girl side of the youth for FC Portland. And you know we we continued it on, and I was with FC Portland from that point on until heading to San Jose. And so what what yeah let's uh, can you explain to people what the U.S. Soccer Youth Development Academy was and yeah how that worked for you because yeah. that was a pretty high level yeah. that was what. I think a lot of the MLS stuff is now uh, the next. Correct. So, so the, the DA was, was, you know, when you look at ECNL now, you know, that was the original kind of ECNL version. Um, the, the DA was national league, um, you know, formed it regionally. So our region was obviously the West, um, you know, which included uh, the Denver area, you know, that I to this day still think it was, the best path the problem that happened was we lost a whole 
age group because the DA came in and told our group that we couldn't play high school. And so our U18 group was like, hang on a second, this is my last year to play high school. I want to play high school. And so they literally left. And so it left us a team short. So And it was only U18 and U16. And so a lot of our U16s were asked to do a lot more at a higher level. And it just, we ended up struggling for a couple of years to, to make it work, not only financially, but um, player for player. And, uh, you know, recovering from that, we just really needed to go be more aggressive in recruiting other players. And, and I think we just didn't really pull that off. But looking back at, you know, getting into the DA was such a remarkable thing for FC Portland and kind of helped push us into the world of ECNL for the longest time. And, you know, it was kind of that start of getting outside of the, just the Oregon, the state of Oregon and, and being a national club. So what's interesting, I want to add some context for, for people too, is the, so the development Academy was a nationwide league, but our league was sort of the region, but we were the only club in Oregon. And so Correct. we were either playing at home or playing, there were two in Washington, most in California, right? And so we're talking 16-year-olds mm-hmm. and 18-year-olds playing in this this league where there's travel. But on top of that, trying to reconcile what high school means and having different rules for different states and different times. So like you'd take a club team from FC Portland who had their fall season, they couldn't play in the DA because it was high school. And then you'd play the California teams, for example, in your first game or two, but they've played seven or eight. 10 games together, yep. right? Or even the Washington yep. teams who hadn't played their high school yet. So they'd been playing together. So you're entering the league, entering the league late when everybody's played their games, not to mention, you know, the travel and you didn't, the local competition you couldn't participate in. It was a, it was a challenge, right? Just a, geographically. And because of the time, this is another pattern I'm seeing in a lot of the things in your career where it's, you know, try doing the right thing for the right thing's sake, but the, things are kind of stacked against you as far as having to hold serve for the game until the next, the better thing comes along or the more stable. Correct. Correct. And that, and truly I look back at the DA at that time and that was a hundred percent. The fallback of that league was for us, everything was travel until we could get another. I mean, I was begging for Westside to become a DA team so that we could create a, uh, you know, a travel partner um, that, that worked and it just, it just, was such a struggle to to create that um, national presence with only us in Oregon. Um, I think it was uh, that's what helped. To be fair, it helped Crossfire and Washington Premier the whole time was you know they they at least had those, um, and it, it was I I think it was such a phenomenal league, and I, I even think ECNL is is such a great put together league, um, and I think you know it is the right avenue for the ability to play the best players all over the country. You know, I think there was such a falsehood of just winning in your state, you know, state leagues of Oregon, you know, you become the state champion. Well, what does that really mean? How do you, how do you stack up against, you know, you never really found out unless you went to surf cup or, you know, something like that. Whereas the DA gave us that competition every weekend. Was it cost effective? Absolutely not. Was it was it doable with less players? Very difficult. You know, we needed a, a bigger pool to be able to use different players for different trips and be competitive. And so you're trying to do all this and be competitive, which was was a massive challenge at that time. Um, but you know, again, I think it was still a, a wonderful 
start to what really is now everyone's trying to get into, which is ECNL. I definitely want to give a shout out to the players and families and, and the club who went through that because that first year was tough. Second year with the 18s, we missed the playoffs on, on goal differential. And so those guys did more with less. Um, Facts. And Facts. Our, definitely proud our group of them. Was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a huge ask. And I remember, I remember going to parents and going, I know this is a huge ask, but this is what we got to do. And we had a lot of people really step up and help out, including our club that, that helped offset you know, players that couldn't afford it. And, you know, we really tried to make it work. And, and I think it was uh, a testament to everybody involved that tried to continue to make that work. So collegiately, you coached at your alma mater, the University of Portland for a while, uh, spent, I think, two years at San Diego State, correct? Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about those years and how? Because now you're, I would say, you're a college coach. That's what you do. Yeah, yeah. How did those, how did that time up until New Mexico State University shape you and, and solidify this is what your career is now? Yeah, for sure. To be fair, it's this is actually quite funny. We, we you know, Lauren, obviously, who was the head coach at San Jose State, was um, also an assistant at the same time as me. We both started our college careers together at UP. And, uh, um, you know, when she asked me to come down, you know, I li- literally was, you know, there's a good opportunity to keep keep the ball rolling. Um, I definitely was fully choosing the um, the women's side. Um, you know, truth be told, there's more jobs on the women's side. Just just that many more. There's literally double more the the soccer programs in college in women's than there is in men, um, which is super sad. Um, I might add, but uh, you know that that experience at San Jose made me go, okay, you know, I really want my own program. I really want to be able to give back at the top and, you know, move forward. I, I, I truly loved my time with Lauren and we had a great time. We had a great connection. Um, it was just, a, it, it was truly really, really fun. We had a great staff and, uh, you know, it, it made me want to kind of move forward. And so when that, the NMSU thing came up, I received an email from, um, it was asking my current boss, and I, I remember looking at Lauren and I'm like, I got this email from the school. I, I've never heard of it before. Have you ever heard of New Mexico State? I actually hadn't even heard of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I had reached back to the gentleman and said, yeah, I'd be interested to hear more. You know, we kind of communicated and I applied and um, ended up coming down, getting a, a Zoom and interview. And then I ended up coming down and visiting. I went, wow, this place is super cool. Las Cruces is a, is a neat little town. I'd only been to Albuquerque in, in uh in New Mexico and said, never really, never really heard of Las Cruces and kind of was like, this is a, a cool town. And the irony of it is my wife's mother grew up in El Paso. So she'd seen El Paso all the time. So she knew exactly where we were going. Um, but yeah, it just kind of was like, all right, I want to, I want to make a run on it. And, you know, even though I haven't heard of the school and they're D1 and I feel like they're, they want it to be better. And they've supported us tremendously in, in my tenure here. And you know, I think it's been a, a phenomenal experience. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, we talked before when I was, when we you know talked about Clive for that essay, and we mentioned like that can't, what happened at UP can't really be done again. Like building something that, that massive from where it started. 
having said that, I'm looking at your last few years at New Mexico State University, and I'm not, no pressure, but I'm just saying, I'm, I'm seeing some building. I'm seeing you've taken significant gains. And even before we started recording, you gave me a little video tour of even just the space that allows your players to come together and builds community. And I'm, I can't help but see parallels, but um, what do you see from that time that you came in as a player and saw that program build at the University of Portland to what you're doing right now? Because you've also had pretty quick success. You know, I, I actually think it's it's very, very similar. You know, it's I, I know I keep blowing smoke up, you know, but but at the end of the day, that's what I know. And, you know, I understood. I, I personally don't think that, that Clive was necessarily the guru of X's and O's. I think he was the guru of people. He knew how to get people to bring the most and bring the best and bring bring it connected. And, um, you know, that's one of the biggest things that I try to mimic here is, is, is just bring people together and make, have them want to play with each other. And, you know, I was actually, um, I'm in a, in a pretty good place right now because we had an, an amazing training session this morning because everything we've been working on this spring, we played an inner squad today and it was uh, all the things I was asking them to do came together and they felt it and they, and they, you know, saw it. And it was super cool to kind of watch this, you know, realization that we are a very good team and we are a threat to a lot of schools out there. Um, we couldn't get USC to come to New Mexico State ever before. You know, now we're a good RPI team where, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully forever be a top 100 RPI school as a, as a division one school. And, you know, there's 347 women's programs. So it's, you know, I'll, I'll take that all day long. Absolutely. And it probably helps to have a couple culture people with you and your uh, other coaches from the University of Portland. Can you talk about those two guys for a minute? Oh, for sure. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, I did lose Miguel. Oh, I didn't I know that. Him. No, I lost him. To, I lost him to Gonzaga. Um, I can't tell you how unbelievable having Miguel join me on this venture, having someone that, that came from the same world as me. Um, I've known for years, um, you know, call just, I mean, I, no, I just can't say enough about his, his just morality and just who he was as a person. He just was just such a great human. And then you add the fact that, you know, we had a similar soccer brain and how we wanted to do things. Um, you know, he's instrumental to us getting to where we, we are together. Um, I would be remiss to ever say that this was done by me alone. It was, you know, a team project by far. And that's um, former Timber and uh, University of Portland pilot Miguel Guante. And SC Portland. So it's kind of, NFC, right. we literally had this, this complete connection all around. And then, and then the irony of my staff is, you know, a player that I recruited at San Jose state was who ended up going to Oregon when the, um, coaching change went from cat to Graham Brooke Schultz, who is the daughter of a former teammate of mine, Trent Schultz, who was in my class at, at Portland. Um, you know, it was during COVID. She was, you know, realized it wasn't the place for her, you know, that the change was just completely different from what she expected. And, you know, Trent reached out how we can, you know, help. And I'm like, you know, Trent, you've always been, you know, Brooke has been like my, niece my you know her whole growing up i go i'll always make sure she has a home you know 
you know, worst case scenario, she can, she'll always have a home here. And if we can't find something else and, you know, Brooke came down and, and during COVID and just visited the school on her own. And next thing you know, she decided to come here. And once she decided to come here, Trenton and Ange visited and went, Oh my God, this place is beautiful. Why are we living in Seattle? Next thing you know, Trent and Ange moved down. And, you know, I look over Trent, I'm like, what are you doing here, man? You should be my, at least be part of what we're doing. You know, he's like, I, 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 I love what I do at work. I'm, I'm in a great place. Um, but I, you know, love to volunteer and help out. And so Trent's been a volunteer coach for the last two seasons and it's been amazing. Like he's just, it, now we have, you know, and it, which has made my transition in losing Miguel much easier because now I have another person that I can rely on to, to help keep the culture going. And now we've just hired a, a new um, assistant to um, replace Miguel, whether that's a replacement of Miguel. I don't think we'll ever do that. You just, you don't replace people yeah. like that. You, you move forward and you just move on. But so we yeah, should give been, a, uh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Oh no, I interrupted you. No, you, no that, that's the on. most Canadian you've sounded this whole time, by the way. When you said sorry. <laughs> yeah, we we uh, we get jokes about it all the time when we play the game. Sorry, I'm like, I was like, are we going to play sorry or are we going to play sorry? I'm like, well, how's it spelled? S O or S A? It's, it's right. still sorry. <laughs> I want to give a quick shout out to both of uh, both UP um, graduates who were there because it's not just Trent. Angie went to the UP too, right? Facts. Yeah, yeah. and and Angie is such a like just been such a cool connection to our program with with my wife like it we were truly a family environment here at, at nmsu and our girls know our wives as much as our kids and it's 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 a pretty cool environment if you're ever if you're ever looking to get out of town you and catch come down and, and and hang out in felix and come see us and we'll show you around we get to play some sorry i'm there yeah, right. definitely playing that. Absolutely. Yeah, so, game. <laughs> so last couple of questions, if you don't mind, because we're talking about culture now, and I think that's important. You had some big success. Uh, 2022 was was a high watermark, I'd say, um, but it's 2024, so that doesn't. I don't. It doesn't not matter, but at the same time, yeah, you're building a program. You're not trying to. You're not going to live on that one year. How important is culture, and how much do you have to do non soccer wise as the head of a college soccer program to? advocate for the sport advocate for the players uh, and keep a culture going yeah i mean that that's a massive question we might be here well but i will say i will say this is how i start this off the the group that will be on the field starting this fall against usc on august 15th two of those classes weren't part of that WAC championship so they the only thing they know about that is stories and and what we talk about um, and again, it's what, what, what I love about when you have a good culture, it doesn't matter if people leave, if you know, when your culture is, it's not set, if it leaves with a class and you have to rebuild it again, the one thing that we've really worked hard on is continuing that same build of what that culture looks like. So when that class that, that truly did develop it leaves it's still solidly there and and i think that that's truly where we're at right now i think you know the incoming freshman group will join in just like the freshman group is now and you know it it, it just continues and and that and that's what i felt um even though you get different dynamics in personalities and people and style 
your culture stays the same. Styles might change. Uh, the way you play might change. But the culture is going to be the same. You know, all the things that Clive taught us about being on time, about, you know, just respect and how you are and, and, and how we're going to be. And I think that's one of the biggest things that's helped on the other side of your question, which is the other part of my job. And that's building our program. What does our field look like? We, we need a press box where we can't host. You know, it's all the things that we dealt with at Portland. We're not hosting because we don't have the facility to host yet. And, you know, the, the following year when we played UCLA in 89, we end up playing at UCLA when we should have been playing at home. And it just is, is you know, so now I'm, I'm, I'm in the fundraising world of, you know, myself and two players were up in Santa Fe with legislators, you know, just schmoozing and trying to figure out how we can get funding for, you know, our field has a slope on it. It slopes off on the one side. How do we get that fixed? How do we, how do we get a press box added? You know, this last year we got lights added which was game changer here when you're, when you're playing in August and September and it's a hundred degrees and you have to play at one o'clock cause you don't have lights. That's a problem. And, and we just kind of have now just really grown um, into the program that we are. And I'm not going to tell a lie. Yes, we don't have Merlot, but what we were building now is something pretty cool for, for, you know, a recruit to come in and say, this is where I want to play. I'm going to play under lights. When, when we score, the lights are going to you know, dance. And we're going to play your song. And it, you know, it's a, it's a cool environment now. And, you know, that all is part of our culture because we're, our girls are in the community all the time. Our coaching staff is connected to, to our donors all the time. And, and it's a constant work around the, you know, behind the scenes that a lot of our girls don't even know about until we get the things that they they really need yeah how cool is it going to be for them and, and is it probably right now to say not just i played for new mexico state university but i helped build that program because that's what you know awesome. anyone who's played for you the last four years has been doing yeah it's, it's super awesome and and, here's, and you know how here's that what, feels i do and here's what here's what's super cool about it it is our final regular season game last year was at western kentucky and i get a phone call from an alumni before me who lives like four hours away and said, Hey, cannot tell you how much it means to me of what you're doing with our program. I get to tell my kids that I played there. Um, we're going to come to your game. So she brought her kids to the game, um, you know, stayed overnight to, to be able to watch us play and met the girls. And it just was, it made me realize, what we're really doing and it's not only are we doing it with the girls that we have now we're doing it for all the girls that were here before and 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 i tell them all the time when they reach out that they're part of who we are now because you'll always be a part of of new mexico state aggies whether it was before me or not it's still you're still an aggie yeah and who they'll be after and so that's what i tell our girls yep it's facts yeah. Bardo, we've just brought the whole theme of this entire project together in that, in that last bit it's fantastic we did good work I appreciate that. Thank you. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Anything you want to, you want to end with before we. No, I tell you what, I, I, I love what you're doing, Billy. I think this is, uh, so cool. I've, I've enjoyed all of them. I've enjoyed everything you've done in connecting, you know, Portland soccer is a massive, like <sighs> interweaving. I don't know, man. And the stuff that you've pulled out has been, uh, it's just been super cool, dude. So thank you. Thank Thanks. You I appreciate this. that. All right, Rob Bartz, mm -hmm. thanks for coming on, Rob.
You got it, my man. You ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7-3 To play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly You can hear it on the radio, you'll see it on TV But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee Green is the colour, soccer is the game We're the Portland Timbers, and we're in the So let's be 